And uh, you get a fascinating kind of insight into the gentility of these kind of people. He was a gentleman adventurer, a gentleman diplomat. In those days, people like William Ashby were not paid a salary. They were given their paid expenses, but they were rewarded in other ways by giving lands and revenues and rents and things like that. And he did quite well for himself in that regard. But he came, he was completely landless himself. He was the younger son of a younger son, and his father didn't inherit anything. Welcome to the pod. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm your host. Now recently I was thinking perhaps we've had a little bit too much of the Second World War and no Tudors since Sarah Griswood nearly a year ago now. So we're now going to combine that with espionage as I talk with Timothy Ashby all about William Ashby, Elizabethan secret agent. We'll hear all about Ashby's story from Tim in particular his work as station chief in Edinburgh, running agents and black ops. As you heard at the start, he was a self-made man, but was involved in the aftermath of one of the most stunning events of the 16th century, the Spanish Armada in 1588. He worked for Sir Francis Walsingham, who was Queen Elizabeth I's spymaster, and he was brilliantly played by Geoffrey Rush in the movie Elizabeth, with Kate Blanchett as history's most famous redhead. Now, as well as talking about the spy masters of the Tudor period, we also go on to chat about Phaedon's Rebellion, a slave uprising in 1795, one that is not particularly well known. Tim, as well as a historian, is also a novelist, so we delve into the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Our chat concludes with a discussion of Operation Condor. This was a controversial policy followed by the US during the 70s and 80s to help subvert left-wing democracies, often in favour of fascist governments in such countries as El Salvador, Chile and Nicaragua. Tim has experience of the Reagan and Bush administrations as a foreign policy advisor and he also gives his view on why the Americans were involved so heavily. Tim has had involvement with the Caribbean island of Grenada which the US invaded in 1983 to overthrow a particularly nasty regime, so we briefly talk about that as well. I put in links to books and articles that we talk about throughout, and if you like the pod, please like and subscribe, and even give me a review, which I'd be hugely grateful for. And if you want to get hold of me, you can on our email address at history at aspectsofhistory.com, or you can get me on the Twitter at ollywcq. I'll hand you over to me and Tim talking Elizabethan espionage. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Timothy Ashby. Thank you. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you on, um, Tim and I'm very much looking forward to this because we're going to cover a few things we're going to dance around a bit of history uh, because I want to mine your your brain for um, many very interesting um, uh, areas of history so we're going to start off though in Elizabethan times in uh, in the Tudor period Um, in particular the subject of your um, your history book Elizabethan secret agent the unknown uh, sorry the untold story of william ashby 1536 to 1593 who's a very interesting chap and what's fantastic is that you have uncovered this and so i thought it would be good for our listeners just if you introduced um yourself really because you've got quite an interesting backstory and I think that's going to help the listeners um, with some of the things we're going to talk about a little bit later Uh, and then obviously we can talk about um, William Ashby as well because obviously there's no coincidence between the two surnames. All right yes well I'm um, I've had quite an interesting adventurous life if I put it mildly. Um, I grew up on the uh, island of Grenada in the Caribbean. Uh, I was still a British colony when I was a, a, a young man my father was the chief veterinary officer, so I uh, spent much of my time, rather than going to school, doing archaeological work, skin diving, sailing, um, and uh, various things like that. And there was no TV in those days in the island. And, um, and then moved to Spain with my parents after that, 
and lived in Spain. And uh, in my later teenage years, I had an old Boltaco motorcycle and I uh, was fascinated by the Peninsular War. And I cruised all around Spain in the pre uh, 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 superhighway era on my motorbike and actually would camp out on the Peninsular War battlefields like Albuera and Talavera. And, and uh, if, in those days, there were actually still bones and, and buttons and bits of muskets and things like that on the battlefield. And quite an adventure. I, <clears throat> I had a map. I think from 1812, uh, that was titled The March of the British Columns Through Spain. And I actually followed that map, uh, and, and, and again, be, before there were any motorways like today, and, uh, to, to actually, and visited most of these, these famous places, even cities like Badajoz. I was um, always fascinated by the Peninsular War. So it's um, interesting you mentioned, it's ahead. interesting you mentioned Badajoz. Sorry to interrupt, but. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, I, I, this is a terrible name drop, please forgive me. Um, but I was uh, interviewing Bernard Cornwall, who had, I haven't visited Badajoz, but obviously he had, and he was saying that there is a, uh, Badajoz for, for, for our listeners, for the benefit of our listeners, there was a, um, it, it was the, the subject of, it was the location of a, a, a siege between the British and the French, and it resulted in a terrible, um, uh, the British army, once they had, uh, um, overcome the battlements and got into the city. They then completely went mad and and raped and pillaged through the whole city. And Bernard Cornwall, and this was about eighteen twelve. Am I correct? Yes. And Bernard Cornwall was saying there is an air of melancholy, a, a sort of a very strange atmosphere in the city because I think it also suffered in the Spanish Civil War. Is that what you found when you? When yes, you I went? did. And of course, when I was there all those years ago. When I was a teenager, it was little developed. I mean, there was very few modern buildings, and it did have that air of melancholy. And, and um, you know, it was a very kind of strange place. Um, and it was, I mean, I, I haven't been back since. I don't know what it's like today, but I think it, he aptly describes it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, did you go to Salamanca as well? I did go to Salamanca, yes. In fact, I studied uh, intensive Spanish for a month in Salamanca a few years ago. And, took, and was able to get out to the battlefield, which is uh, still pretty much untouched. I did exactly the same thing when I was 16. How, how funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, so carry on, please forgive me for interrupting. Oh, I, I, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll quickly go over my subsequent. I, I, was, um, I, I have a, a, a doctorate in international relations, a PhD. Um, I have an MBA from Edinburgh University and, and also I'm a, a lawyer, um, an American lawyer. And um, I, uh, I've worked for the U.S. government. I was a political appointee in the last year of Ronald Reagan and the first two years of uh, Bush Sr., who I was a personal advisor to during his, well, his vice president also during his presidential campaign. And um, subsequently lived and worked uh, in various places around the world, including South Africa and various countries in Europe. And I worked for Ernst & Young after I did my MBA in doing privatization work in Eastern Europe and Russia and the Czech and Slovak republics and Latvia uh, after the wall came down. Um, my, my dissertation was published as a hardcover book, much to my surprise, called The Bear in the Backyard. It went into nine, nine editions uh, about, at those, that time, a Soviet uh, policy towards the Caribbean and Latin America, and, um, and of course, now Russian. So it's quite real. But I still get people commenting about that and asking what I think of the situation today with Russia. And I said, the, the bear never really changes its, its fur, I suppose, instead of its spots. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. That's. Well, I'm definitely going to be uh, asking you about that. Yes, you've been quite busy this year, haven't you? And you're you you're, you you've written books, novels, Seth Armitage thrillers, which are a, a thrillers set in, in the U.S. But this year, yes. yeah, you this year you've you've written the um, William Ashby story, the Elizabethan secret agent, mm-hmm. um, and then we'll talk about Ranger, which is your novel. Um, yes, but- they were both. They were both published this year, and in, in um, one in January, one in March. And uh, I wrote Ranger. We'll get into that, but I wrote Ranger last year in six months, and then it took about two years to research and write uh, the William Ashby book, which was, of course, nonfiction. It's a, a, a biography, um, quite complex, I must say. So we we can get into that first, as you as you suggest. Yes, let's get let's get into William Ashby. Who was William Ashby? Well, William Ashby. Um, I discovered William Ashby during during genealogical research, uh, he was actually the first cousin of my 12th great grandmother, if that makes sense, it's quite a long way back. Um, he was a footnote in, a, in an old edition of Burke's Landed Gentry, just a mere footnote that said, William Ashby, Queen Elizabeth's ambassador to Scotland, 1588. I thought, well, that's all I know about him. There's nothing really available much online. 
And I was intrigued by this. First of all, you know that the year 1588, of course, Spanish Armada <clears throat> um, ambassador, I thought this is quite a, an interesting person. So um, almost as a labor of love, I should say, I just kind of began casually researching him and discovered a huge body of material, of archival material in the British Library and uh, the National Archives and various diaries and uh, had enough material to write a, a complete biography of him. And I discovered not only was he an ambassador, which was probably secondary to his main career, uh, but he was also a, a top secret intelligence agent. I mean, actually employed very by Sir Francis Walsingham for a, a quarter of a century and actually very close to Walsingham. Um, and and I, he, he appears in some of the biographies of Walsingham. There were brief references to him. And um, he was, uh, he accompanied Walsingham. He was in, with Walsingham in Paris when Walsingham was ambassador to Paris. He accompanied him to a delegation to Scotland in 1583. And then uh, just when the Spanish, literally when the Spanish fleet was coming over the horizon, uh, the Armada, he was sent hurriedly to, um, to Edinburgh to be the, uh, the English ambassador with the mandate to keep the Scots neutral. In other words, promise them anything, Walsingham said, just, you know, as long as they keep the Spanish out, because there was a huge fear in the foreign policy establishment uh, in London that the, the Spanish would land and, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, invade from the north. And, uh, and of course, they had planned to land in England, but of course, were blown off course. And of course, they didn't hook up with the, uh, the, the, the Duke's um, forces from the Netherlands. Um, but they, there was a great fear up, actually up until two months or more after the Armada uh, was more or less defeated that they would still land. So Ashby was sent there with a clear mandate, prevent the Scots uh, from uh, allying themselves with the English. And there were still a number of Scottish uh, Catholics at that time who were very much opposed to Protestantism and, and support the Spanish. And also um, do what you can to uh, destroy the, any Spanish attempts to establish a, a basis in Scotland. That's exactly what he did. And what was the relationship between the monarch um, at the time in Scotland, James VI, with, well, with um, the Spanish? Well, um, this, James, King James was playing all sides. He played the, the French and he played the, the Spanish and he made various promises and uh, he secretly was writing to them and saying, I, my heart belongs to France above all else. And, and, and he was playing games with Spanish. It all came down to money. <laughs> the, uh, the king was impecunious and uh, it had to even for his wedding outfit a couple of years later, he actually had to borrow the wedding clothes from one of his nobles uh, because he didn't even, couldn't afford his own wedding clothes. He was always short of money. And it really came down to whoever would make him the most promises <laughs> from a pecuniary sense that he would, he would basically side with them. And William Ashby made him various promises. Um, he even said he would, he'd be an English Duke. He'd be given lands back that it had belonged to his, his, his uh, grandmother. Um, he'd be given certain sums of money, which they called a pension, but it was actually a bribe. And then when uh, the Armada was um, defeated, Queen Elizabeth said, no, no way. We, not, we don't need to give him anything. So, um, and uh, it caused a lot of problems because uh, Ashby stuck his, his neck out uh, to do this and was reprimanded publicly and officially by Walsingham and by the queen, he was furious. But basically, uh, I, I think it was all a setup. I think Walsingham had told Ashby, never, never mind, I'll look after you. And he did, he wasn't dismissed from service. He stayed on for another year and a half approximately as ambassador. And it was, seemed to have all been forgotten. So, um, there was there is strong evidence that Walston basically whispered in his ear and said, promise him anything, I'll take care of you, because there's nothing documentary about that. Although there, we do have documents where Ashby says, excuse me, Sir Francis, can I go ahead and do this? Is this the right thing to do? And uh, Walston apparently didn't reply and, and just went ahead and did it. But at that time, uh, they truly believed the Spanish were going to land and make a base there. So... Ashby's job really is is to keep James the sixth on side. James the sixth, of course, is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, and Sir Francis Walsingham. It'd be great to talk a little bit about him because I've always got this vision of it, him being Queen Elizabeth's, you know, rather Machiavellian spy master. Um, but could you talk a little bit about uh, Walsingham? Yes, well, he was he was a Machiavellian spy master. Um, he. Um, he had a, a few loyal subordinates that he trusted, and William Ashby was one of those, which is why he was sent to Scotland as ambassador. And, and Ashby had no true diplomatic experience before that, although he had been a diplomatic courier and a secret agent, even in the courts of, of, uh, the, uh, of the Continental Courts. Um, 
but, but Walsingham also had a very bad relationship with the Queen. I think many historians are not aware of this. Um, she treated him very badly. She had a very derogatory nicknames for him. There's a, a famous case which I've documented where she actually takes, up, picks up, takes off her slipper and throws it at him across the audience chamber in London. And was and it was it continually degraded him, and uh, but Walsingham, out of loyalty, um, carried on up until actually until he died, and uh, he many times threatened to quit and said, I, "I I can't deal with this, and it's causing me, you know, mental anguish and physical, uh, physically ha damaging my health." So, uh, but he stayed on, and uh, I learned. First of all, I I developed a different perception of Queen Elizabeth because she was arbitrary and and. Um, and uh, changed her mind and also conducted her secret negotiations or thought she was, but of course, Burley and Walsham knew all about these. But she treated her, her, her subordinates, uh, with the possible exception of Burley, uh, very badly. Now, Ashby met with her and actually um, briefed her on several occasions, probably more than that, that I've documented. And she seemed to treat him well, um, and, uh, but, but Walsham seemed to rub her the wrong way, to use that expression. So do you think, because she's towards the end of her reign um, around this time, isn't she? Is, is, this yeah. a, is this a sign? I mean, I'm just trying to get at why Queen Elizabeth treated um, so many of her advisors badly. Is this because she has, you know, she's, she's well set on her throne, whereas uh, when she was uh, uh, much younger, her, uh, her position on the throne was a lot more uh, uncertain? Or, or is there something more more behind well, that. Well, I think that she was quite stubborn. She was constantly being warned by Walsingham that uh, her life was in danger. And there were various assassination attempts against her, including one in, the, in 1590 that William Ashby actually prevented. He gathered intelligence about a plot to assassinate her and brought her back to London with him. He discovered it, I think, uh, in, in Scotland, brought it back. And um, I, I think that um, uh, she was just uh, very stubborn. And she truly thought that, of course, because she ruled by divine right, that, that, that she knew better than anybody, even her intelligence uh, um, uh, specialist, and of course, Lord Burley. And even Lord Burley, um, uh, who was probably closer to it than anyone, complained to Wallstrom that she didn't listen to him, uh, you know, and he doesn't know what the Queen is thinking, and, and she's arbitrary and all this. So doing my research, I discovered a lot of behind-the-scenes chatter, as one would say, about the Queen. And of course, they were very circumspect. Uh, but Wallstrom actually would complain fairly bitterly to, um, not to Burley, who would report it on to the Queen, but to others about uh, how badly he was being treated. So I, I think that, um, I think I think she's probably a very insecure woman based in, uh, going back to her childhood. And um, there's one funny incident, if I could relate it. Um, so one, a young nobleman was walking in the garden of actually Westminster Palace and the tilt yard, as they said. And uh, and he looked up one morning and the, and, and the, the Queen was at the, uh, the window of her bedchamber wearing just her nightgown and of course hadn't done up her face. And she scowled at him and he said, oh my God, you know? And so that evening he was walking the garden again and the queen came up to him and slapped him in the, on the side of the head. And um, I wrote in the book, I said, it's a good thing it wasn't his father. His head would have been chopped off instead of just whacked by the queen. But that's the kind of funny arbitrary stories that I've come across just in ex exchange of correspondence in the course of the research for the, the, the William Ashby book. That is brilliant. Uh, so William Ashby, I, I, there are plenty of, um... Um, tales uh, of what he he was up to, and and I know we've um, spoken before, and you've mentioned really he's sort of running black operation, black ops that yes. um, that that are probably quite familiar to you know CIA agents and that kind of thing. But it, it's it's uncanny some of the things he got up to. Um, so so please uh, give us some of the black ops he was up to. Well, uh, first of all, um, he was. He was primarily a, 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 an intelligence agent, and in fact, he he was known to uh, enjoy his intelligence work more than the diplomacy. He thought diplomacy was a, a trial. Um, he um, uh, he uh, he ran. Uh, he was basically the station chief, the equivalent of a modern MI6 station chief. He ran a number of Scots who were his agents. I mean, uh, probably dozens, um, and uh, in particular, one named Smollett, who actually was recruited in in 1583 uh, in London by Walsingham personally, who was introduced to the Queen. And um, Smollett uh, was, um, uh, he was co-opted by the, the English because he, uh, he was, he tried to murder uh, the, the Chancellor of Maitland. Anyway, to make a longer story short, um, the, the a Spanish ship called the San Juan de Sicilia uh, uh, came to anchor in, in Tobermory Bay and its sails were tattered and it needed the provisions and sails. 
And it was uh, not carrying treasure, it was a, it was a, a troop ship. It had about 200 uh, soldiers aboard. And Ashby uh, and Rawlson were afraid that they would, um, that they would form a nucleus of an army because they were well-trained uh, uh, professional soldiers. And uh, the local laird uh, said he would, uh, the ship could shelter there as long as the soldiers helped him attack his neighbors, fellow lairds, and, and, uh, and uh, burn their villages and, and uh, raise their castles or whatever, which they did, which really alarmed uh, not only the, 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 some of the Scots, but also, of course, the English, which is this kind of rampaging disciplined uh, army that might have formed the nucleus of more. And also there was fear there were more Spanish ships and more Spaniards coming ashore. Actually, more than a thousand Spaniards did take refuge in Scotland above and beyond this. So Ashby conceived the plan, it certainly was Ashby's plan, with, uh, with um, Walsham's blessing, to send Smollett to ingratiate himself with the Spaniards and to be a, a, pretend that he was going to provide them with provisions, including new sails, uh, so they could sail out of there and, and go back to Spain. And this is and, prior uh, to the Armada, right? Yeah, yeah, well, it was actually the, the Armada, there the, the was the Armada ship, it's one of the ones that, that flew up, fled up around the, the northern coast of Scotland and took refuge. It was it was battered, but it was still a, a serviceable. I and, see. So uh, we're in the immediate aftermath of the Armada. It was, it, it was actually like a, a, it was actually a, the the Black Op took took uh, took uh, took place in November. So it, it was several months actually. It anchored there while the troops kind of rampaged, and um, so Smollett uh, went aboard and was well known to the Spaniards and ingratiated himself with them. And then, uh, according to the official documents, he laid a powder train laid, uh, to uh, the magazine, lit it, and, and got off, and the ship blew up. And that's the famous Tobermory Galleon, which, of course, is the stuff of legends and is a treasure ship, which it doesn't at all. And um, so it was, and it killed about, it killed most of the crew, but the soldiers were ashore, so they survived and uh, kind of were wandering around still, kind of off, living off the charity of various lairds. And then, um, but Ashby reported back that this, we have conclusive evidence in two letters that Ashby sent to Walsingham. He said, you will know who, who carried out the operation or the, the words who laid the train, one Smollett who is known to you. And then Ashby smuggled him out of Scotland uh, and sent him, they said, well, I need to get him out of uh, Smollett out of Scotland. I'm sure that they, uh, the, the local Scots would have known about this. So that's one operation he was involved in that effectively destroyed that, that ship. And then the second operation was that there were, there were well over a thousand um, Spaniards, as I mentioned, in Scotland, and they're being sheltered and given haven by um, King James. Uh, and of course, it was the neutral country then, so the, the English could not carry out active operations against them. They had to be clandestine. So um, Ashby negotiated a deal whereby um, the, the Spaniards would be allowed to leave, the, the, leave Scotland uh, and go back to the Spanish Netherlands <clears throat> and ultimately to Spain. Uh, unmolested, and the Spanish uh, said, okay, fine, but can you promise us the English will not attack us when we're going on the ships down channel? Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and he said, yes, so they, they, had, they confirmed that. But the problem was that, so they chartered two uh, Scottish uh, vessels to carry these, I think they're roughly seven or 800 men who went, another 300 or so stayed behind in Scotland. And as they were cruising down the the, the English coast. They called into various uh, called into various uh, English ports, and they were well. They were fed and 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 uh, and, and uh, sheltered, and, and no one attacked them. And just as they were crossing the the channel to Dunkirk, uh, a group of what were called sea rovers, who were this, uh, uh, Dutch buccaneers who hated the Spanish, they appeared out of nowhere and they attacked the ships and, and killed the Scots and 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 killed most of the Spaniards. A few made it ashore. But it was certainly another black op coordinated, so this, this English could claim clean hands. And we didn't do it; the, the the Dutch pirates did it. But it was obviously coordinated. They wouldn't have known just when to attack them. So, uh, and Ashby is the one who negotiated the deal. So I'm sure that he was uh, behind the these tipping off the pirates too. So those are the two big black ops he was involved in. I'm sure there are many more smaller ones. <laughs> well, that latter one—that's certainly quite a lot of blood on his hands, there, isn't it? Yes, it was quite a lot of blood on the hands. And funny, I was interviewed by a Spanish newspaper after the book came out, and the reporter kept saying, well, did William Ashby hate the Spanish? And I said, well, no, it's, it's not like that. Spain was the great power. It's like the Soviet Union in the past, or like the, the great power, and uh, it was imperial power. And, and quite frankly, England was threatened. They threatened the very existence of the queen. They were Protestants, and they had open plans to come in and uh, execute the queen and execute um, the Protestants. And they thought they were, in a, they were in a fight for their lives. And these were legitimate enemies. They were at war with this country, just like um, 
uh, we were during World War II against the Nazis. And it's not that he hated them, he was doing his job. And then um, for all that, and he got actually actually got along very well uh, with most people he worked with on the continent. He was quite the Renaissance man. But uh, that's, that's just said he saw it as a job to be done and, and uh, to protect his country and his queen. But after this operation then, and he's, he's still based up in Edinburgh, presumably he's, well, not really blown, but certainly then there must be questions about him. I think that it would, would have been known that he, he functioned as station chief as well as, 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 as ambassador. I think that everybody did that in those days. Certainly a Spanish ambassador in London, where everyone knew he was the top intelligence agent and the French ambassador too uh, at the same time. Um, he actually got along quite well with the Scots. He actually developed an empathy with the king, uh, unlike the, many of the previous English ambassadors and some who came after um, he actually defended the king. He said, you know, that we've got to help him and we want to stay on his good side. And um, I, as, as you know, that later on, um, the, the, the Burleys and especially um, uh, Cecil uh, secretly supported him to secede the queen. The queen never named him as her successor. She didn't like King James. She said nasty things about him. She even threatened to have him a, a, uh, assassinated at, at points and discovered documents to that effect. And uh, she called him a, a nasty little boy and things like this. So she didn't want to, she didn't want to, she never said he should be her successor, which is what he wanted. But uh, certainly Ashby laid the foundation for a good, a much better relationship that led to him succeeding the queen. Ashby was uh, a close personal friend of uh, Lord John Hamilton. Uh, and in fact, Ashby became the godfather to uh, Lord John's son, who became uh, the second Marquess of Hamilton. And the, the King James was the other godfather, because it was quite a, an honor in those days. And I'll tell you an interesting story about that, if I may, about the book. So we we didn't have, for the illustrations of the book, we didn't have a, a portrait of Lord John Hamilton. He was the first Marquess of Hamilton. And uh, even though he features very prominently in the book. So my editor found the current Duke of Hamilton, approached him and said, do you have any portraits in your castle of, of Lord John, your ancestor? He said, well, yes, we, we do actually. She got permission to go and, and take a photo, uh, including the book, and the Duke actually held the ladder she got up in the ladder with her digital camera to take this. And that's in the book. And, uh, and he was fascinated by this curious history whereby his ancestors, the baby was, uh, that William Ashby was the godfather. So he has a copy of the book. <laughs> that's a great story, isn't it? Fantastic. Fantastic stuff. And so with Walsingham dying, he was, his role as sort of spy master was taken over by William Cecil. Is that, is that, have I got my Tudor history right here? Yes, more or less. It, it kind of morphed into it. I mean, Burley, kind of, Burley, Lord Burley, Cecil's father, more or less, um, it took over. And so Ashby was given, back in, in London, Ashby was given kind of like what you call the Scottish desk and also the, the French desk with, and today. And, and he, he was definitely in the good graces of, of the establishment of Burley. Uh, he was uh, he was given uh, 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 he was made a member of parliament. Of course, in those days they were basically given seats. He was given various uh, revenues and rents from rec Catholic recusants, uh, and uh, was doing quite well for himself. And then, uh, unfortunately, he contracted the plague and died in 1593. Do you have any sort of written sources of, uh, um, describing his end? Because the plague was a particularly nasty way to go, wasn't it? Yes, I do. And I, I, I present these in the book there. Some of the sources are based on other, I mean, other accounts um, of, of people dying of the plague. We do know from his, his will, uh, whether it was, which is a fairly detailed will, is that we know he was attended by a, a doctor. And, uh, and, a, and the doctor describes his symptoms and, the, and he describes his, him rallying enough to name a few people, including his servants in the will and asking that this be done. And then he kind of lapses back into um, a coma. So we do have those, those descriptions, but, I, I, but um, it, the story fits in neatly because at this particular time when he died, and he died actually on Christmas Day of 1593, uh, we know that the, that the plague was sweeping through. In fact, the queen withdrew to Windsor and actually wouldn't allow anyone to come close. So the roads were swept clean and people who were refugees were, were forced back. And, and um, it was quite a, it was a horrible situation. Uh, and um, so, and, and, and I feel sorry for William Ashley because he, he obviously had big things to look forward to. He was still, he was only in his fifties when he died. He, but it's funny, he still referred to himself as an old man. <laughs> so, yeah. I guess he was by 16th century standards. And, and so obviously the surnames 
your surname, his surname is the same. What's the family connection? Yes, he was he was the, the first cousin of my 12th great-grandmother. His name was Barbara Ashby of Lowesby. And uh, it might sound like a tenuous connection, but um, fairly closely entwined family who were well-connected in Leicestershire, where they were from. And, um, and, and, and I just think I'm, the way I was doing him some, some, a, a great service by kind of telling his life story. And it was an adventuresome story. He, he did a lot of other interesting things. He fought off pirates on the Rhine. He described it in a letter to, to Walsh. And he negotiated the release of, a, of an English diplomat who was taken hostage by the Spanish surrogates and, and, um, and uh, didn't succeed. But he met with the, the Duke of Cleves, who was Anne of Cleves' um, uh, younger brother, and you know, negotiate the deal. And, and there are lots of descriptions of these types of things that he did. And he was a Renaissance man. He, he takes a leisurely tour with his best friend, Sir Arthur Throckmorton, uh, goes cruising down the Rhine, drinking wine and, and buying books at the Frankfurt Books Fair. There actually was a Frankfurt Books Fair in those days, too. And um, talking about the fine meals they had and the, and the, the friends they made. And, and uh, you get a fascinating kind of insight into the gentility of these kind of people. He was a gentleman adventurer, a gentleman diplomat. In those days, people like William Ashby were not paid a salary. They were given their paid expenses, but they were rewarded in other ways by giving lands and revenues and rents and things like that. And he did quite well for himself in that regard. But he came, he was completely landless himself. He was the younger son of a younger son. And his father didn't inherit anything. Um, and uh, so he, he made he did very well for himself. He he matriculated at, at Cambridge, at Peterhouse. He got a master's degree from Peterhouse. He subsequently went abroad. He was a Marian exile, fleeing Queen Mary, one of the, the, the thousand young Protestants, especially from the Oxford and Cambridge, who did that. He went to the University of Paris for two years. I think he started his spying career there, frankly. I don't have documentary evidence about that. He came back and uh, actually went to Oxford University, got a master's from Oxford, and then he became a, a, a trained as a lawyer at the ends of court. So quite an interesting uh, career, although it, it parallels what other many other young men did in those days, the kind of careers they had. Yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful story. I, I, it really is. I, I'll put a link in the show notes for, for the book here. So, Tim, now we'll move further... Uh, to warmer climes, the Caribbean. And this is the subject of your novel, Ranger, um, which I think is set in 1796, Grenada. Yes, it is. Uh, now, if my 18th century history is right, um, Seven Years' War, 1763, is the Treaty of Paris at the conclusion of the Seven Years' War, when I think Grenada is handed over to Britain from France. That's correct, yes. So you, your hero, he's a very interesting chap, Alexander Charteris, um, I think Chart for short. Oh, Chart, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so could you just describe that? This is a historical fiction novel, so we're going from nonfiction to fiction. And again, the link will be in there for the show notes for our listeners. But um, this is an interesting period of history because we're, we're around the French Revolutionary Wars, Britain and France, uh, as is our tradition, um, fight a lot. And Chart, your hero, has a very interesting backstory, doesn't he? And and I think at the same time, John Adams has or is is about to be or um, has been elected president of the United States of America. Yes, that's true. If I could just say one thing that um, I previously published a um, a scholarly article for the Military Historical Society in London on Phaedon's Rebellion. And I'd, uh, and I'd done a lot of research for that. I'd always wanted to do a novel uh, based on Phaedon's Rebellion. So a lot of the historical research came from that, 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 that launched the novel. Well, I'll add that link in. If you can share that link, I'll put that in there as well. Uh, I'll send that to you. Yes, Phaedon's uh, Rebellion is, is definitely something um, uh, that I want to talk about. Because that's quite, un, you know, I'm, I'm familiar mm-hmm. with the uh, rebellion of Toussaint Louverture, in mm. San Domingue, but um, yeah, the G- Grenada is is um, altogether an un- unknown area for me. Well, it was a it was a classic um, uh, subversive subversive activity by the French Republicans. It was during the course of the French Revolution, and uh, the French did exactly what the, the Soviets did. Um, you know, in subsequent centuries, they infiltrated agents and um, they uh, they brought in arms and ammunition and training and and uh, and liberty caps and cockades and all this, and they. Uh, they, 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 the, the white French, uh, uh, the, 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 the old white planters uh, who were French and, and the, the, the mixed race French 
uh, were kind of second class citizens after the British took over. <clears throat> the British were a minority uh, on, the, on the islands. Uh, they had some of the biggest and best plantations, but there was still a large percentage of people who were had been the French colonists or descendants of French colonists for the past 150 years. And they were ripe for revolution. So, um, and also, of course, the, 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 the Republicans promised the abolition of slavery, the freedom of slaves, which, as I talk about in the book, actually did not take place. They, they basically, they freed the slaves, they would proclaim their slaves, and they said, yes, but now you have to work for us without, without pay. <laughs> so, and, and some of the slaves didn't like that, which, is, as I mentioned in the book, they actually fled and joined the British uh, to fight against these people because they had been promised to freedom, and the British did promise them freedom. Maybe I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but Chart basically joins a, an actual unit called the Loyal Black Rangers, composed of former slaves, trained in, in guerrilla warfare. Uh, and um, they were promised their, their freedom if they fought for the British, which they did. Uh, so that, that was all true. Anyway, to, to, uh, Chart chart is based on, on genuine characters um, that I've researched. He's born in Grenada on his family's sugar plantation. His father is an aristocrat from Leicestershire. And um, the mother is a, a mixed race, a Garifuna, who's a black Carib from St. Vincent. The, the, the father is a Renaissance, well, uh, an Enlightenment man. He reads uh, the Burke and, and whatever, and, and, uh, and Rousseau. After the mother dies in childbirth, the father takes the little boy Chart, uh, whom he dotes on, back to, to England and raises him as an aristocrat. He goes to Westminster School, and he's, and he's uh, treated very well by most people, even though he's, he's dark-complected. And in fact, the Westminster School is based on an actual Jamaican mixed race man in the 1760s uh, and, and his, his, his experiences. Uh, actually, funny enough, he was actually treated quite well, which is interesting about race relations in those days. It is interesting um, that I just wanted to um, explore yes. that a little bit, because race relations, um, as you say, in those days, Look, I'm not sure. I'm not sure one could describe it as um, uh, equality, but I think the Victorians had a much more superior attitude, and that's where a lot of the race, um, the approach to race, changed. But yes. like you say, in the 18th century, things weren't quite as as bad as as I think they got during the Victorian period. Is that fair to say? It is correct. And what's interesting too is that there were literally hundreds of mixed race individuals from the the British uh, Sugar Islands, especially Jamaica who were sent by their, their fathers and, and, and by their relatives back to uh, Scotland and, and England and Wales. And, and, and husbands and wives were found them and they were usually from a wealthy background and they were integrated. And in fact, many of their descendants, I've met some of them in, in modern England who aren't even aware that their ancestors were mixed race people from the 18th century. So that they, were, they were accepted. In my opinion, it was based more on class in those days. Um, you could be a mixed race person as chart is who's from an upper class uh, and be accepted if you went to the right school and whatever. And so uh, I don't see it as, as, a, as a color issue, although in the, in, in the Caribbean colonies themselves, it was more of a color issue. Uh, kind of, and uh, some were treated as second class citizens. Although again, in the book, to quickly segue back to that, uh, I, I talk about a, 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 a mixed race man, a mulatto man of French ancestry who became a hero on the British side. He had a cavalry unit. And, uh, and there is a monument to him, actually, uh, in St. George's Grenada to this day. His name was uh, Captain Louis La Grenade. And by strange coincidence, uh, his great, 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 I think five times great granddaughter is the governor general of Grenada today. Isn't that an interesting connection? That is, absolutely. Um, so Chart, it gets involved. Uh, he, he gets a bit of bad luck. And I don't want to, no spoilers, but... He does well, get in mixed up with um, slavery in Grenada, doesn't he? He has a he has a nasty cousin who wants to inherit uh, the land uh, that uh, from the, the father, uh, and um, and uh, so Chart is actually uh, re-enslaved on a legal technicality, and that's this. Uh, it's, in other words, if the mother had never been mother was purchased as a slave by the father, and uh, the, if the mother was was never manumitted before her death. The child of a slave was a slave, and so they. And, and, and I use a famous court case that took place actually in the 1770s uh, in England to describe how he was basically still considered a, a, the, the chattel of this cousin. And uh, in a, in a, again, not to give too much away, but he basically is re-enslaved, kidnapped, kidnapped in, in London, sent back to Grenada, and labors on a plantation until freed by this Phaedon's rebellion. Yes, yeah, so Phaedon's rebellion. Let's talk about that a little. 
Who was Phaedon and Phaedon was Phaedon was the the uh, the mulatto offspring of a French planter. He had quite a large plantation, and you know the, he's he's a national hero of Grenada to this day. I grew up in Grenada; I know this quite well. Uh, but it's, strangely enough, he had over two hundred slaves himself, and and in fact, they were just as as egregious as slave owners as the as the white English or whatever. And uh, so Phaedon um, led the rebellion. Uh, he fancied himself French Republican considered himself a general. Uh, his brother, strange enough, was the chief uh, slave catcher on the island uh, in, during the British colonial period. So you see how, how this is all nuanced. History is so nuanced, which I talk about quite a bit too. And they, uh, the, 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 the French Republicans and the freed slaves um, uh, almost captured Grenada. They were they pushed the British back to just the small capital city of St. George's. And the garrison was small and uh, they were, were almost defeated. Then the British brought in, uh, I think, 15 different uh, units and various regiments, including the 17th uh, uh, Lancers and, uh, and, uh, and, and various other Scottish regiments and, and uh, the 60th uh, foot. And many of these were brought in. It was a vicious guerrilla warfare throughout the island, throughout the jungles. And, and many of the techniques actually adopted uh, in those days were used by Sir John Moore in the peninsula. Who, and John Moore was not in Grenada, but he was brought in St. Lucia at the same time. Wonderful. I'm a huge fan of Sir John Moore. Um, I'm going to put a link in for the listeners if they want a, um, a Wikipedia page for him. Um, uh, the great what if of history, had he not been killed at the Battle of Corona, would yes. he be, well, he wouldn't be the Duke of Wellington, but the Duke of Wellington wouldn't have been around probably. Probably not. Yes. And I've admired him too. And he was also very supportive of the emancipation of, of the black people to join the British army and founding the West India regiments, of course, which, uh, some great service. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, that's another oh, he, he, string he, to his bow. He, he suggested, he's the one who suggested recruiting black soldiers and, and, and uh, uh, emancipated slaves, freed slaves, to form the, the, these black regiments. He said they, they can do better service. And if I could quickly um, add that my new book, the sequel to Chart, is, is about the, the black regiments serving at the Battle of New Orleans against the Americans in 1814, 1815. So that's where Chart reappears. Now, now as an officer in one of the West India regiments. Oh, fantastic! Now, the Battle of New Orleans is a um, is a result that the didn't go quite according to plan from a British perspective. Yes, it was it was a shambles from the beginning. Uh, it was a, a different divided command. Uh, uh, Admiral Cochrane said he was an overall command, but he was a naval officer. There were various generals who were appointed and reappointed, and and uh, including the Duke of Wellington's. Um, uh, brother-in-law, uh, Pakenham, who was uh, actually killed during the battle. And uh, there was the logistics were terrible. They didn't have food and, and supplies, and they tried to they tramp overland through the marshes and swamps. And they attacked uh, a fortified position, fortified by the Americans, uh, across, a, 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 across a, in a, a vast kind of a pasture. And just a couple of months ago, I actually went to that battlefield and then walked all around it. And then just can imagine this, this marshy field these the british regiments marching in column against 24 pounder cannon with with grape shot and, and canister and and all these riflemen and of course many of the americans had rifles and they picked off almost all the officers there was a the, the largest percentage of british officers killed in any one action mainly by riflemen shooting them off their horses anyway i won't give too much away but the book will be finished sometime later this year wonderful wonderful <clears throat> um well, we're just moving on to the closing stages of our chat. And this is what I'm also very interested in. Particularly, you mentioned nuance of history. We're now going into a rather, your experience from the 80s um, in Latin America. Now, this is around the time, and, and I'm, I'm concerned that at some point you're going to go, no, I'm afraid I can't talk about that. But I'm, <laughs> I'm going to ask you anyway, because this is, is so interesting to me, is, is American involvement in Latin America... Now, I think there is a uh, Operation Condor was sort of the official term described. Um, but this is where across Latin America, a number of countries have, uh, well, certainly contrasting political, uh, political parties or left and right. And this, the differences were quite stark. And obviously, Reagan views Latin America as the back door. And I wanted to ask a little bit about a couple of a few of the countries that were involved. And, and by the way, you should dive in if I'm saying and talking rubbish, because you know a lot more about this than I do. 
But I, I was interested in El Salvador because uh, you, we haven't mentioned this, but we've both got experience of Belize in Central America, which is nearby El Salvador. I, I was an archaeologist there for a bit and you spent some time with the British Army there, I think. But, well, just my birthday, the 21st birthday in the Jungle Warfare Training School. <laughs> a memorable moment for anyone's 21st, yeah. Um, but Salvador suffered during a terrible civil war where now... This is where I'm going to posit something and you're going to tell me I'm completely wrong. But we had a pro-American fascist government that was disappearing people left, right and center. And some um, terrible examples, uh, terrible atrocities I'm thinking of. And I'm going to put links in for our listeners so they can explore more if they like um, where... um, nuns were were murdered by um by members of the paramilitary organization i think linked to the um salvadorian government but could you sort of give the opposing side the reagan answer to what i've just said which is you know a pretty distasteful regime why get into bed why did america get into bed with with such a regime well there was there was genuine concern and of course um you know, a, a lot of intelligence um, evidence that the these the the guerrillas uh, that they they were communist guerrillas were being backed and supplied um, by the Soviet Union by Cuba. Um, in fact, even led and trained by Cubans. Funny enough, as I mentioned, it was similar to Fatal's Rebellion. And I could just add one more aside as to how I got into this. Um, I was living in Grenada in my early twenties, and I was a businessman. I had a, a, a putting together a restaurant and I had a small factory and uh, real estate development and they had a communist revolution there in 1979 and I lost everything at a very young age which and I was apolitical before that but it motivated me to go to university and um, and do my dissertation it's called the bear in the backyard Moscow's Caribbean strategy which I was able to have access to intelligence documents under the freedom of information act and, and expose exactly what you're asking about, in other words, and it talks about, I talk about El Salvador and Nicaragua and Grenada and places like that. And it's well documented that, that there was a strong subversion going on. Of course, obviously, the, that there was a reaction against the, the brutal regime of the right, the U.S.-backed regime. So the United States policy at that time, which is a long time ago now, was similar to what the, the, they, they, the, the policy in Vietnam, basically, they, they thought it was going to be a a, um, uh, you know, a chain reaction that if they didn't stop communism there, it would spread to other countries uh, and uh, a domino effect, they called it. And so that's why before that, the U.S. backed these dictators, uh, even though they knew about the human rights violations, they said it was the lesser of two evils. That changed later, uh, and they decided to put more aid in, and also they, they, they focused on democratic elections and whatever. Frankly, in, in the, most of those countries are still a, a, a mess today. Uh, and but the, the subversion is more from the narco traficantes, the, narc, the drug dealers, than it is from the left. Uh, uh, Cuba doesn't care about them. Cuba has no resources anymore, and the, Russia certainly isn't interested in them. But now the the, the major drug drug lords are, are basically running the show and and um, causing subversion of their own right if they don't actually control the government. My immediate thought is Mexico, obviously. But are you, are you saying that um, many more of the countries in Central and Central exactly. and South America? Yeah, I, I and, and and I don't want to my neck out here but yes i'd say they all have a strong um, element of influence by the, the the drug lords even to this day yes i see that i mean with belize in particular and belize had i think traditionally always been a, a stop-off point to america mm-hmm. but <clears throat> that that's increasing i guess since the british army um pulled back um, that became more of a um, more of a location for this kind of thing. It is, and also the the, the drug lords um, bribe everybody. They're, they're many poor people, including politicians, and and uh, I think like there's a recent case in the British Virgin Islands where the the, the premier was replaced uh, because he was heavily in bed with the drug dealers, and the same in the Bahamas. And um, you have these very poor countries, and you have a lot of a lot of money to spread around, and they provide. Um, way stations for the transporting narcotics to the U.S., which is like a, uh, you know, a, a great hoovering effect as far as, you know, this massive desire for drugs all across the country. Well, Grenada, it, Grenada itself, and you're a Grenadian, obviously, aren't you? You're, you're born... No, I'm not a Grenadian. I lived there, but I wasn't born there. I'm, um, I, I've lived there for a number of years. Okay. But Grenada was involved in an invasion by the Americans in 1983. Yes. Which... 
is again, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I remember it very vaguely. Um, I think it actually features in a Clint Eastwood movie, the heartbreak, heartbreak Ridge, but <laughs> yeah. um, Grenada uh, Reagan sent the troops in. And this was quite from a British perspective, this was highly embarrassing because it was part of the Commonwealth. And I don't think the, British government was informed beforehand, but why did the Americans go into Grenada? Well, um, primarily because of the American medical school there. There are a thousand of medical students who are making phone calls and saying, you know, we live in, a, in, in terror. So what happened is that, as I mentioned, I was actually there uh, just after the Grenada Revolution of 1979, when a kind of faction, they call themselves communists and, and, uh, and, uh, or socialists, and they were backed by Russia and Cuba and the East Germans, and they they took over, they deposed a, a very corrupt prime minister and uh, set up their own revolutionary government. And then a few years later, um, the, uh, the, the, the kind of the soft leftist and the, and the, and the Stalinists fell out and the Stalinists uh, massacred uh, the, uh, the uh, Morris Bishop was the prime minister, who I knew quite well, by the way. And he generally was actually concerned about the brutal repression and, and, and secret police from the Stalinist side. They literally lined him up with other government ministers and with his, his girlfriend and, and, and machine gunned them uh, in, in the, the old fort there. And um, then they imposed a curfew. The, 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 the Stalinists killed about 100, at least 100 just ordinary people who ventured out and said, what's going on, man, and that type of thing. And it was a reign of terror. And the, and the medical students actually did beg to be rescued. They said, we were afraid they're going to turn on us next. And they were making threats against them. I know this very well. I was I went there immediately after the revolution and talked to a lot of people, including the Grenadians and the medical students. And they 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 generally were afraid and they appealed to the U.S. to come in and rescue them. Um, the British thought that was interference in their affairs because they were a Commonwealth country, even though, in my opinion, they were kept well informed of it and they were relieved that the U.S. went in because the British didn't have the capability and didn't want to uh, do that at the time. But the rescue mission was relatively clean and surgical. Um, and, um, and there, were, there were a few casualties, including some American SEALs. But the people generally welcomed the Americans. I mean, they absolutely jubilant to it. They thought that they were being liberated, welcomed the troops invited into their houses, didn't think they were being oppressed. The Americans pulled out very quickly, by the way, after that, the troops. And they also dumped in uh, tens of millions in aid and built and resurfaced the roads and things like that. The Grenada is a relatively stable little democracy today. Um, and, uh, and the people still give thanks. Uh, they actually even celebrate their Liberation Day, which is, again, the world doesn't seem to realize that it really was considered liberation. And I don't think Reagan would have gone in if it hadn't been for the presence of the American Medical School. Great stuff. That's that's so interesting. I, I, I There's so much more I'd like to talk to you about, but perhaps I get you on a, another time. Absolutely. I'm thinking, yeah, Chile, Nicaragua, Iran, Contra, all this stuff is just so, so, so fascinating. Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome, Molly. I do hope you enjoyed that and our 500-odd years' worth of history. Coming up next, I've got crime in World War II London. And as a special episode, I'm talking about the partition of India, the anniversary of which is on the 15th of August. I had a very nice review from Carlito29 on iTunes. And to quote him, or it could be her, I'm not usually interested in historical fiction, but I will definitely give these a go now. I'm so delighted to read that. Until next week, thank you and good night.